Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Daniel Dombey. This week, two broadsides were aimed at the old order in Europe and showed just how much things have changed over the past 12 months. First, President-elect Donald Trump decried NATO as obsolete, bracketed Angela Merkel together with Vladimir Putin, and made clear he didn't much mind if the EU succeeded or failed. Mr Trump also offered a speedy free trade deal to the UK, providing a boost for Brexiteers on the eve of Theresa May's big speech on the blueprint for Britain's life outside the EU. So what has been the reaction to the Trump and May interventions? And how practical are their plans? I'm joined by Alex Barker, the FT's Brussels bureau chief, and Sean Donnan, our world trade editor. Alex, let's start with the man of the moment. Was there a rapturous response to Trump's comments in the chancelleries of Europe? Not quite. It's hard to really capture how kind of bewildering it is for a lot of these top flight politicians to hear a man who's about to become US president say the kind of things that he did in this interview and has been a lot of wishful thinking in a lot of the kind of governments and diplomatic systems around town that, you know, as the Trump administration was bedding down, as preparing for the presidency, that he would temper his language and perhaps the best policy for them would be to wait and see and stay calm. And I think this interview really caught them off guard in a way because of it's just how forthright it was and that sense that they're having to deal with a US president for the first time since the war, who is kind of actively championing the disintegration of Europe, is kind of settling in a bit more. And that's not to say that they necessarily know what to do at this point, but the scale of this challenge. And Sean, if I could ask you a couple of questions. First of all, has the uh, Trump interview had the same play in the US political establishment as it has in Europe? I mean, has it caused the same kind of response among those people as it has in the uh, chancelleries of Europe? And secondly, Trump talked about a trade deal, a speedy trade deal with the UK. How feasible is that? What are the possible obstacles to it? Well, I think both of those things fit together, and they all fit together with what has been the rule here in Washington, which is general bewilderment at what's about to land in the White House. And I mean that in the sense that comes from both Republicans and Democrats who really are looking at this president, and the rule seems to be unpredictability. And uh, a president who is really willing to test the norms of the U.S. engagement with the world. I think what, what Europe had this week was a flavor of what, and what European politicians had this week, is a flavor of what the U.S. and U.S. politicians have been dealing with for months now here, and that is how do you interpret these wild, provocative statements by Donald Trump? And the rule here in Washington has become you take them seriously, but perhaps not literally, and that really is the mantra now with the Trump administration, especially after we've been seeing a whole series of his cabinet nominees go up on the Hill and disagree with him openly. 
And Trump, in fact, saying, well, you know what? Actually, I don't mind that. They may be right. I may be right. We'll see where we go at some point. I think you've got to think of Donald Trump as someone who has kind of very little self-restraint and does not have the traditional restraint of American presidents and will just kind of talk off the cuff on big matters of policy. Whether that and how long that continues once he gets into the Oval Office is something we just don't know. He's not there yet. He certainly hasn't shown any signs of tempering his language yet. But that rule of seriously but not literally is something that Europeans and European leaders are going to have to learn. When it comes to a trade agreement, look, again, the same rule applies. He has said, I really want to do this quickly. And he clearly has said that because he thinks this will strengthen the hand of Theresa May and Brexiteers as they kind of lay out their agenda and their priorities for an exit from the EU. But he's not getting into the practicalities of that. And the practicalities and the realities of a trade negotiation is, one, they don't happen quickly. There's just no such thing as a quick trade agreement. And secondly, there are going to be some really hard negotiations that are going to have to take place across the Atlantic when you actually sit down and try and hammer this thing out. And thirdly, you probably can't do that until the UK sorts out what its economic relationship is going to be with the EU. Alec, is there any scenario in which you could see in which the UK struck a deal with the US before the EU? So even if the UK had completed its divorce talks with the EU, is there any way it could strike a deal with the US that would kind of set the terms of uh, the country's relations with the rest of the world before coming to some overarching deal with the EU? It's possible, I guess. Depends how well or badly the Brexit negotiations go, I guess. The UK's main trade partner is the EU, but if the talks around the kind of nitty-gritty of the extraction process, you know, the bills, the rights, which are some of the most difficult issues, if those goes badly, the UK might find itself looking elsewhere. And the trade potential with the EU and the chances of pulling together that what Theresa May called the new partnership might be difficult. So let's segue on to Theresa May today. She was talking, really giving a blueprint for Brexit and giving her most extensive comments by far about the path of Britain ahead. This was a fairly historic speech. Alex, what did you single out as the most important factors of that speech? And how do you think it was reacted to in Europe? It was indeed a very important speech. It was mainly about this future relationship as and less so about the divorce and what you saw on the one hand was some really clear messages on what her expectations were that Britain couldn't live with the kind of political requirements of the single market and would be leaving that Britain wanted to be trading and striking trade agreements around the world and therefore would not be maintaining the EU's kind of common external tariff those are big decisions and and she's made those clear at the same time she kind of narrowed some of the options for for compromise in the negotiation itself by having quite a strong line on Britain not paying vast amounts into the EU uh, in the future for for market access or or whatever, and also reiterating that, you know, it will be British courts deciding on British laws in the future and that any kind of superstructure where the UK was still following the European courts would not work, and that makes a transition deal also much more difficult. And I guess the the third point that a lot of people in Brussels have been picking up on was although she said Britain would be leaving the single market and 
moving away from the customs union and strike its own deals. She also said she wanted elements of the single market still and an associate membership of the customs union where some of those benefits would be replicated. And that is the kind of cherry-picking approach that some of the EU types in Brussels are very nervous about and would see as impractical and and, uh, implausible. And immediately you've seen the EU's top Brexit negotiator coming out with a clear message that we've got to sort the divorce and the withdrawal first before we start talking about ambitious free trade deals about the future. And I think that's pretty much supported in Paris and Berlin. Now, obviously, that kind of timescale means that uh, it may be that much of the two years is taken up by those divorce talks. uh, And uh, we may have a longer period to wait before we get any kind of trade deal. But sure, maybe as our trade editor, you could tell us a little bit more about this. Theresa May talked quite a bit about this uh, on the customs union. First of all, she suggested that we might want to renegotiate a customs union of our own, new customs relationship with Europe, or indeed be associate members of the customs union. Can you be an associate member of a customs union? Isn't a customs union something that you're either in or out of? Absolutely. I think what she actually was saying is we're going to negotiate our own customs union. In other words, we don't want to be part of your customs union. We want to be part of our customs union with you, which is a kind of sort of odd construction. Look, the, the broad point on, on trade is the UK and what May laid out today is that the UK is choosing the most complicated path on trade. And that means that it's going to take years of negotiations, not just with the EU, but with the U.S., at the WTO, with the WTO's members, with countries in Africa, countries in Asia, to kind of reconstitute a framework of trade agreements that the EU now has with the outside world and that the U.K. now benefits from in order for the U.K. to live up to this idea of a global Britain. Now, you know, what's fascinating is we often think of the Brexit vote as a vote against globalization. And Theresa May laid out the opposite case today, right? She laid out a case for a UK that is kind of liberated to have an even greater version of globalization than it has had under the EU. The problem is, is that it's going to take a lot of hard work. And right now, the UK does not have the capacity in terms of its trade negoti- in terms of trade negotiators or uh, kind of the institutions that it needs to kind of create this framework. And that means I look at this and I say it's going to take a decade to get back to where you're starting from in terms of access to global markets for the UK. And that is the big question about the EU, is whether that control over immigration that British voters seem so keen on is really worth the cost of the broader economic acts, of sacrificing or complicating the broader economic access to the world. And Theresa May today said, yes, we think so. Now, Alex, in his interview, Donald Trump talked about how Angela Merkel had made, in his words, a horrible mistake on allowing refugees from Syria to come into Germany in the numbers they did. He called them illegals, comparing them, it seemed, to the Mexicans who go over the US border. He talked, obviously, about other issues, but we see certain commonalities here, don't we, in ripping up old traditional policies on both sides of the Atlantic. Britain's obviously ripping up the foreign policy and economic policy, which for so many years was associated with the EU and came out of EU membership. We see, in a certain sense, a more antagonistic tone from Mr Trump. And we saw a bit of a veiled threat from Theresa May in terms of Britain perhaps giving up or changing its social model, its economic model, if the Europeans didn't play along. 
What do you think both of these interventions from Mr Trump and Mrs May say about where we are in politics in early 2017? It's a hard question. What would the response be from Europe? I mean, that's something I've been trying to think about and have been asking around Brussels. The sense so far is that it's been a bit of a unifier. The 27 have plenty of problems. You've got a, a three tremendously important elections coming up in France, the Netherlands and Germany that have some of those same political forces that have been at work in, in the UK and, and the US. But the sense of a kind of Anglo-Saxon mission to break up this union might be something that actually kind of galvanises. And I think particularly for the UK, it would be quite a risk to align very closely with a Trump administration that is seen as a kind of divisive force if they're hoping to build the kind of strong relationship with the EU that Theresa May was talking about. And in fact, in her speech, she was kind of trying to distance herself from that and say that, you know, she wanted a strong, successful Europe as well and that it was in Britain's interests. If I could just go back to one thing that Sean was mentioning on trade and the timing and how long this all takes, and I think that cuts to one of the most important judgment calls that Theresa May made in this speech, which was to basically aim to do the trade deal with the EU within two years, so before Britain had left the Union. And as a result, the kind of smooth exit she's looking for is basically a phase-in of trade terms. It's the kind of implementation of, of what the future relationship will be like, rather than what in Brussels they call a transition and phasing out of the old rules. And that is a absolutely core decision. And at the moment, I've not found many people in Brussels or any European capitals who think that is, is really feasible in that time frame. There's a lot to discuss on the divorce. There's a lot at stake in that trade relationship and in terms of finding a model that doesn't look better than membership. And they don't think that's possible. And that is really going to be the nub of the early stage of this process. You know, UK will be wanting to get on fast with that trade talk, with those trade talks, and the EU is going to be looking at the divorce instead. Yeah, I just therefore like, I'd like to end just with a couple of uh, quick fire questions. First to you, Annex. How do you think the Europeans will be responding to what they heard from Mrs May, particularly on the back of Mr Trump's comments? From the EU27 perspective, it looks like she has narrowed her, her space for compromise, particularly on a transition. There, she's narrowed the space for compromise on the divorce by taking a hard line on money. And she's put out some pretty ambitious goals on how to structure this and make it work that a lot of people here think of as impossible. So I would probably say that, yes, it has increased the likelihood quite markedly of, of there being no deal. And Sean, Theresa May talked about a global Britain, a trading nation, but you talk, said that it may take 10 years to apply in a place where we are already. When you look at what Trump's saying, when you look at the challenges ahead of Britain and Brexit, do you think the world is retreating from a freer trade model that has actually taken so many decades to unroll? I don't think the world is retreating. I think the U.S. may well be retreating, and the U.K. may well be retreating. And those are two powers that were leading forces in kind of laying out the architecture of the first model of globalization, of post-Second World War globalization in the model 
that was hashed out at Bretton Woods. But the reason I say the world isn't retreating is that you know China is now, by some measures, the world's largest economy, and it is putting a huge emphasis on trade and expanding its networks. India, likewise, is a new force in terms of globalization. Countries like Brazil, relationships between China and Russia, Brazil and the rest of Latin America. I don't think globalization is ending in 2017, but I think what we're seeing very clearly is a pivot from a Western or Anglo-Saxon-led model to one that is led by these new emerging powers. Some welcome global perspective there. For now, that's all. Thank you very much indeed to Alex Barker and Sean Donnan. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.